Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey everyone, on this episode of Six Degrees with Mike McKenna, I'm joined by former first-round pick Martin Berrand. We talk about a 16-year playing career, his 20-year-old skates, rolls of clear tape on his ankles, and yes, even the fight with Ray Emery. But what I love about Marty, though, is he's so willing to talk about his career, tell some stories, and he was universally known as one of the best locker room guys out there, and that's why he had such a long career. You can see him now doing some TV and media work in the Buffalo area. Enjoy. games later a young guy from Quebec's living in New York State where he spent almost his entire career besides two and a half seasons Marty Baran thanks for joining me today yeah thanks no I was in uh, you're right I did all three New York team New York State teams and then uh, the you know Philadelphia Flyers so I stayed in the high bracket district in the Northeast so I never went to the uh, the easy sta- uh, states like Nashville and Florida with the state the state taxes so yeah I um I stayed where I paid my taxes and paid my dues. <laughs> ouais, et tu as bien. Ah, tu savais très bien, merci. Hein? So that's pretty good. You learn uh, you, you learn some some things uh, over your career. Oui, je parle un peu français. J'ai tout pour un, deux, trois, quatre ans, but that's about as good as we're going to get. I don't want to ruin <laughs> any more of my French because I had teammates like Pierre-Luc Leblanc used to always tell me, Mike, don't speak French. You're no good. So I'm not doing it anymore. That's all we're going to get. The probably the longest name in hockey, right? Pierre Luc Letourneau Leblanc. So that is a, uh, a a mouthful right there. If you can say that, you're pretty good in French. Yeah, and they had to take his name and condense it so it could fit on a jersey too. It was like they used to think that Rod <laughs> at Brindamore had a really long last name until PL3 came along. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you guys call him PL3. That's good. <laughs> well, you have to with something like that. Nobody could pronounce it in the first place. But yeah. going, going into your story here, one of the first things that jumps out at me is that It wasn't just you that played in the NHL. You also had a younger brother who played 250 games. But the oddity to it, to me is that you're the older brother. Usually it's the reverse, that the younger brother ends up as being the goalie. So what was your household like growing up? Um, you know what? I was always a goalie. From the time I was three, four years old, I used to be in the hallway and, and wait for my dad to come home from work. My dad was a construction worker and he would come home from work and I'd have, you know, two sticks. I'd have uh, two mini sticks. I'd give one to my dad. I'd have the goalie stick. I used to be in the, in the kitchen hallway or whatnot. And I'd ask him to shoot balls or pucks at me. And so I was really young and always fascinated by, you know, goalies and, and at the time, so I was born in 77. So when I was five, six years old in the early eighties, now goaltenders start to have you know colored equipment it wasn't just the brown leather equipment there was blue there was red there was white uh the masks were painted uh you know there were so many things that attracted me to the position and then i started playing it and loved it so but it's funny that you you mentioned my brother and the fact that he's younger and it wasn't me the older brother that said to the younger one like hey you stand in the net and i'm gonna pepper you with shots because when I got interviewed for at the draft, so when I was being drafted, you know, the draft was in Edmonton. So we go over there, you meet with teams, and I met with the Tampa Bay Lightning, which at the time had Phil and Tony Hespositos on the on their staff, right? So I'm in this hotel room and 
And Phil and Tony literally have a beer in their hands. Like it's it's about as loose as it can be. They're like, Marty, you want a beer? I'm like, no, I think I'm okay. But that's what um, Phil Esposito asked. He said, tell me, you have a brother, right? And I said, yeah. He goes, why are you the goalie and he's the he's the player? He goes, in my house, I was the older the, the older of the two. I told Tony, you stand in the net. And that's how Tony Esposito became a goalie. And so I didn't really have an answer at the time, like never really thought about that. And then I started thinking, well, how did I become a goaltender? And, and like I said, I used to draw, right? You're five, six years old. You, you, you draw like NHL logos and you draw players. Well, I always drew goaltender. I always drew, you know, like the, the pads and I would put coho on the pads or uh, when Patrick Roy became really popular in the early you know, late 80s, early 90s, I would put Lafave on the pads because that's what he was wearing. So I always had that that draw to the position and, and stuck with it. You're kind of like me that I used to draw race cars because I grew up in, that, uh, in yep. that scene too. So I draw those all the time. But I was the same way with equipment too. I'd draw masks and designs that I thought I might want someday. Who were the goaltenders that you were drawn to? Because growing up in Quebec, I think the obvious thing to think was that you're probably a Habs fan. I don't know if that's true, but who really did you gravitate towards? I hated, hated the Canadians because I was in Quebec City. So for me, it was ah, the Quebec Nordiques. The Nordique. Oh, this right? is good. So, yeah. so the Canadians were the enemy. It didn't matter if the Nordiques were good or bad during the regular season, as long as they beat the Habs in the regular season, and if they were ever to meet in the playoffs, then it was full-out war in the province of Quebec. And so I grew up watching the Quebec Nordiques. So my earliest of memories is Daniel Bouchard. Dan Bouchard was a veteran goalie, had played in Atlanta, Calgary, um, had been around a little bit. And so he came to Quebec and was a veteran goaltender and did really well. Um, And then right after him was Mario Gosselin. And Mario Gosselin was a younger, you know, energetic type goaltender. Then the Nordiques had a bunch of goalies. You'd think uh, um, they had a guy by the name of Mario Brunetta. They had Greg Mullen. They had Jacques Cloutier. They had so many guys. They had Ron Ekstahl, Stefan Fizet. They, they had so many guys that it was hard to latch onto one of them. But the one thing for sure, I hated the Canadians, so I was not a big Patrick Waugh fan. Whatever Patrick did, um, I wanted to do the opposite. So when Patrick developed, the, you know, and Francois Allaire developed the butterfly style, I, I was away from that. I was a stand-up, two-pass stack type of goalie in my junior days. Obviously, I changed over the years, but I hated the Canadians. And... So I mentioned earlier, my dad was a construction worker. His, the company he worked with used to have season tickets. And he would get to go um, to the games or take me to the games once in a while. Well, the only tickets we, we would get during the season was against the Hartford Whalers. Nobody wanted to go see the Hartford Whalers. Everybody wanted the Canadians, the Bruins, uh, you know, you look, the Rangers, the Flyers, all the, the good teams. Nobody wanted to see the Whalers. So I would go with my dad to see the Hartford Whalers. And we would go down by the glass and warm up, and I'd watch Mike Leot. Mike Leot was a tall, stand-up type of goaltender. He was really good. Um, so I watched a lot of them, uh, and maybe that's a weird guy to pick, but I was a big Mike Leot fan when I grew up and really liked what he was doing on the ice. 
This all makes a lot of sense because one of the things I was going to ask you, and you already took care of that, was whether you grew up as a Francois Allaire uh, student, you know, and because everybody associates the French Canadian butterfly and Patrick Waugh and Zéa Giguere and other guys who were in your age bracket. But it's if anybody ever watched your game, you would have known that you didn't fall into that category. You know, you'd throw a poke check and a stack. I mean, yep. obviously, as we got older, yourself, myself included, we would innovate along with everybody else and what we were doing and change our game. So it's interesting that you took a different route like that. And something else with your junior career, as you were talking about getting to that higher level, though, is that amazes me is that you were drafted first round after one year of junior hockey. You know, yeah. that's, a, that's a really quick ascent for a lot of people. How did that play out? Well, you know, it's funny because there was four goalies drafted in the first round in 1995, three from the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, and Brian Boucher, who played in the uh, Ontario Hockey League. He was playing with the, uh, um, uh, I don't remember if he was in, was he in Hartford or Plymouth, or maybe he was out west, I don't know. Uh, but so Mark Denny and I, we're both in our first year of junior hockey. We played against each other, midget AAA the year before. And luckily, we both got to play a lot in our first year. I had a, a goalie partner who struggled, um, you know, in the first half of the season. And slowly but surely, I kind of played more and played more. And I was given the number one spot by Christmas and made the playoffs and, you know, had a really, really solid year. Mark Denis kind of did the same thing. And the other goalie from Quebec that was drafted in the first round that year was Jaguar, as you as you uh, you know mentioned earlier. Jaguar was in his second year of juniors. He had played as an underage at 16, and then at 17 played a second season. He was with Halifax that year, um, and he was the first goalie drafted. He was drafted by the Hartford Whalers. I was drafted in in Buffalo. Mark Denis was drafted by Colorado. That was their first ever pick because they were just moving from. Quebec City to Colorado. He didn't even have a Colorado jersey on. He had an NHL jersey, like a generic NHL jersey when he got drafted. And and Bush got drafted in Philly. So that was kind of like very uh, unique to have four goalies drafted in the first round, three from the Quebec Major Junior League. Uh, but it's because we, we had developed into maybe a, a much more structured, much more technical uh, group of goaltenders. You mentioned Francois Benoit Allaire. Most of those guys were going to their goalie school in the summer. I did go to their goalie school when I was 16 and then worked the goalie school when I was in juniors. Uh, but I was different. I didn't really buy into the whole butterfly all the time. Uh, I was lucky enough because Francois worked also as a uh, um, as a consultant with my agent. So every summer... I would get to do about two or three weeks of training with Francois in the summer. And as I got older, realized that I needed to change my game a little bit uh, to be more efficient. So that's how it all played out. But um, it, it's never going to happen again where four guys are going to, four goalies are going to get drafted in the first round, where three goalies from the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League are going to get drafted in the first round. It's just almost impossible now these days to see that. Well, and amazingly, too, three out of the four year in broadcasting, which is amazing now. But also, all four of <laughs> you had really good NHL careers. And actually, Jiggy does a little broadcasting too. So I would say, like, oh yeah, he does some stuff with TVA in in Montreal once in a while. Uh, Mark Denis is a really good color uh, analyst with RDS. Obviously, Bush is fantastic with NBC. So 
Um, yeah, somehow we uh, we did okay on the ice, but I think we're doing better uh, in our second career. <laughs> well, all four of you had great NHL and long NHL careers. And when you look at the historical arc of goalies that were taken high in the draft, first, second, third round, there's a lot of guys who didn't make it or didn't pan out the way they expected. So, yep. you know, for once, the scouts seem to get that right in drafting guys early. And like you said, now, though, there's so much people are just so afraid to draft a goalie high that it seems like it has to be second round or later, which I get it because we're not supposed to develop supposedly until we're 23 or four or five. But the problem is that when prospects come out at 20, if they're not ready for the NHL by 22 or three, they're considering them a bust now. So it's kind of this toss up between, is this guy really ready or is he just developing? And is it going to take a few years for him to be ready to make the NHL? Yeah. And now, I mean, if you're our late birthday, so if you're born after September 15th of, you know, that year, so you, you get drafted a year later, it's almost an advantage to goaltenders more than any other position because you have an, another year of development, either another year in playing in, you know, the, uh, uh, USHL or even in, you know, the North American Hockey League or in Canadian juniors. And that allows for scouts and for teams to see how your development is. I'll tell you, if, if it wasn't, if I, if, if I hadn't been drafted in 95, I would never have been a first round pick in 96. I had a fantastic season in 95, um, 94, 95 in juniors. And then I struggled my second year. And then I struggled really bad my third year. And luckily for me, I had a contract in my pocket because in 94, 95, I had a great year. I had a really good camp with the Sabres in, you know, September of 95. And because of injuries, because Hasek was injured, uh, Andre Trefilov was injured, Rob Stauber was injured in Rochester. They only had Steve Shields left on their, uh, on, on their, on their list of goaltenders. So I got called up at Christmas in 95. I played a few games as an 18-year-old, and then I, was, I signed a contract. And I was very lucky that all of this played that way because I don't know that the Sabres, they probably would have signed me because I was a first-round pick, but I don't know that I would have had the time to develop you know, with two full years in the minors. I went down to Rochester my third pro season to start the season there. So really I was lucky that... You know, I was drafted in, in after my first year junior when I was on the about the, the, the top of the curve, like in the roller coaster. I was at the top before I dropped. And then I finally made my way back up the swing. But it took a little while. And, you know, I think that it's, you know, it's a luxury that a lot of goalies don't have now the, the time to develop and the time to really set in with a new team. You get drafted first round by the Buffalo Sabres, who have a guy named Dominic Hasek in net form at the time. <laughs> Guys lighting the world on fire. So you're coming out, and I'm assuming that you get the label of the heir apparent, goalie of the future. You know, you're the guy who's going to come in when Dom's finished or moved on or whatever. Was there a lot of pressure associated with that? And when you came up and played those couple games at a junior as an 18-year-old, do you think that, that that helped you or hurt you down the road? I think it helped me because at that time – um, like I said, I wasn't playing all that well in juniors. Um, I was struggling with dealing with, you know, the fact that you're a first round pick. And then I was going to the world juniors, uh, team Canada camp and, and I got cut and I was struggling with a lot of those adversities and the Sabres really helped me. And Mitch Korn, um, actually came down to Beauport where I played juniors, 
a few times to come on the ice and to support me. And that really gave me a chance to, you know, to see that there was a lot of good that I was doing and there was a light that I could, you know, see at the end of the tunnel instead of having the walls really closed down on me. It still took me some time, but I, I felt that there was a support system around me. Now, when I first showed up to my first training camp, like I said, got drafted in the first round, was goalie of the year in the Canadian Hockey League and the juniors. I was top prospect. I, I was so many things. I showed up to my first camp and I thought, eh, I'm definitely making the Buffalo Sabres. I'm really good. I'm going to make this team. Like Dominic who? Like I'm going to be the goalie of this team in just a few years. Um, now that was naive and that was maybe stupid of me, but <laughs> that's the way I felt. I was full of confidence and it's a good thing. I mean, there's so many goalies now that struggle with confidence and I wasn't cocky, but that's how I felt inside of me. Uh, and I performed so well in camp, um, which was really good. I was disappointed when I got sent back down to junior. I was really disappointed. I thought, man, I, I played well. I won a game in preseason. I was good in, in practices and scrimmages. Um, I should have been given the opportunity. But then you realize, you know, there's five other goalies there that are under contract that, you know, they need to put somewhere. So obviously my development was going to be in juniors. But, um, you know, I was full of confidence. And, you know, I, I watched Dominic Asik practice and I was like, I can do the same thing. Well, no, Marty, you can't do the same thing. But, you know good enough for you to think that you can, but uh, it was pretty special. That first NHL game coming out of juniors, is there any cool story associated with it or did it just fly by and you can hardly remember it? Um, I can hardly remember the game. I remember everything leading up to the game, um, which was kind of funny because I got cut from the World Juniors team. I was the last you know, goalie cut. So it was Jose Theodore and Mark Denny made the team. I got cut. So me, Jay McKee, Daniel Cleary, and Danny Briere are the last four cut. So we're all four of us on a, you know, in a taxi going to the airport in New Brunswick so we can fly back home. I get home on December 23rd. The next day is Christmas Eve. So I'm getting ready to, you know, go with my family. And then I got a phone call from Larry Carrier saying, Marty, uh, we need you to get on a plane tomorrow, Christmas Day fly to Pittsburgh and we'll meet you there on the 26th. And you're going to be, uh, uh, you know, you're going to be playing uh, against the Pittsburgh Penguins. Now, I don't know if it got lost in translation or if I wasn't really paying attention. My thinking was I, I was just going to back up. Right. So I flew to Pittsburgh on Christmas day, the morning of December 26th, the bus is supposed to come pick me up at the old William Penn hotel in Pittsburgh, downtown Pittsburgh. And sure enough, uh, our PR guy, uh, Kenny Martin, who now works with the NHL, um, shows up in the hotel and he says, Marty, we got to go to the uh, arena. The bus was late. Uh, they're not coming to get you. So me and Kenny Martin are basically walking and running through the, the street of Pittsburgh with my equipment. I have one strap on. He has the other strap. He has my sticks. I have my pads. Like, it's just insane because I have to rush to the igloo for morning skate. I get to the rink, barely says any word, like, hey, guys, what's up, blah, blah, blah. Get dressed, get on the ice. I get off the ice, and, and now these days, everybody knows the routine. 
the, the junior players know that you go to morning skate, you have pregame meal, you have your nap, you get ready for the game. Back in my days in juniors, we were in school all day. There was none of that. So I had no idea what the routine was. So I get off the ice and I get back in the locker room. All the guys are gone. And I said to Rip Simonic, our one uh, equipment manager that's been there since day one in Buffalo, I said, well, what do I do now? And he says, now you go to the hotel and you have pregame meal. So I go to the hotel, I look for the room, I get to the room for the pregame meal, all the guys are gone. Uh, so I eat, and then there was a few guys from the staff that were there. I'm like, what do I do now? They're like, now you go back to your room, you relax, the bus is at 4.30. So I went back to my room. Well, I didn't have a roommate the night before because the Sabres weren't in town. They flew in the day of the game. I get to my room, it's pitch black, there's not a light on, the curtains are drawn, and there's somebody in the bed that, you know, next to my bed. And I have no idea who that guy is. Like, I can't just wake him up. I'm like, who, what is going on? So I went in my bed, literally scared that I'm like, who is this guy? Like, am I, am I in the right room? You're hoping he's at least room? a teammate, right? You know? I don't know these guys, right? Yeah. So is I'm, this guy I'm like, a I'm teammate or an ex-murderer? <laughs> exactly. I'm, I may not make it alive. But also, I don't, like, don't want to call for a wake-up call. That's before cell phone. I don't want to mess with the clock trying to set up a, an alarm for me to wake up. So I'm like trying not to fall asleep because I don't know if I'll, if I'll wake up in time to get to my first NHL game. So I'm like, my eyes are open for probably an hour. Then all of a sudden the guy next to me gets up, goes to the bathroom, gets dressed and leaves. I have no idea. I found out later that was Yuri Hemlev. That was my roommate. I had no idea who this guy was. And then I ended up going to the game. And really, after that, I don't remember anything. All I remember is that Yaromir, Peter Nedved scored on the first shot I ever saw. It was kind of a partial breakaway. He went high glove. Yaromir Jagr scored two. And we were down 4 nothing after the first period. And I got pulled, uh, pulled out of the game. I went back in the third period. Um, didn't give up anything, but it was pretty cool. I played my first NHL game. I was 18. It was against Mario Lemieux in 1995. I mean, he was unbelievable. Yarmir Jager, Peter Nedved. Uh, I mean, they, they, they had so many players on that team. Um, it was a dream come true. But how good did it feel to get that first huge wad of per diem and sit down to an NHL pregame meal? Um, it was <laughs> really cool, but so you I got, got 35 on the plane. different proteins to choose from, and all this uh, the meal's just it, it's a colossal waste of food. But you have anything you could ever want, right? <laughs> well, the, I had like three bowls of ice cream, I think, after the meal. It was like, oh my goodness, this is great. But the, the biggest part was I got on the plane after the game, and we had a game the very next night in Buffalo in the odd. And Teddy Nolan was our coach, and Teddy came to me, you know, after uh, on the plane after the game, and he says, now, you got your first game, just relax. You're playing tomorrow. And we were playing against the Ottawa Senators at home at the odd. So we played that game against the Ottawa Senators. Funny enough, Mike Bills was the goalie for Ottawa that night. And Billsy and I ended up playing together in Rochester a few years later. And, you know, we know each other really well. But so I played against the Ottawa Senators. We lost that game. And after the game, I got back to the locker room in Buffalo and my bag is in front of my stall. And I look around everywhere and there's only like two or three guys that their bags are in front of their stall. So I'm thinking, 
oh, no, I'm going down. You know, I just lost against Pittsburgh. I lost against Ottawa. You know, I'm they're, they're done with me. I, I totally failed. I'm going down. So I'm kind of disappointed. And um, I'm putting my gear in my bag. And then all of a sudden, the trainer comes in and he goes, Marty, hurry up, hurry up. Put your gear in your bag. I'm like, hurry up for what? I'm, I'm being sent down. I've got my bag in front of me. He goes, no, we got to take your equipment to the practice rink. All the other players have two sets of gear, but you and this other guy and this other guy that got called up, you guys don't have two sets of gear, so we got to get going. We were going to the practice rink. So now it felt even better because I thought I was going back to juniors and it just ended up that they needed my gear to go to the practice ring. So that was, uh, you know, although we had lost that night, I felt like, well, I'm still here for a little bit. Maybe I'll play more. And I got to play in the Montreal Forum, which was really cool. And I was with the team for about three weeks. The old Saberland practice arena. I've been in that place Absolutely. before. What a, what a dungeon that is. But a, cool, <laughs> a lot of aura. It's got an aura to it. You know, it's got a funny smell. You know what the aura is? Uh, all the white gear turns yellow because of the water and it's dark and cold and it was just a, you'd say a dungeon, I may say a dump. It's a lot better now, but it was not really good back then. Well, thankfully, you ended up in a better place in Rochester the following year, I guess. Well, a couple years later after that, a couple you did a yep. more junior and, you know, you get to Rochester, you had two years there. Your second year, you lit it on fire, best goalie in the league, Calder Cup finals, but the first year didn't quite go as well you ended up spending a couple games in the ECHL and yeah I'm curious how that played out because to a lot of guys that would be a really tough thing to go through and then from that point forward how it had sprung you you know into the next season and, and the success at that level well I struggled in Rochester and I was with Mike Bills as I said um Bilzy was a veteran goaltender um you know I played some NHL games I played a lot in the IHL AHL so he was going to be my mentor uh, he was fantastic with me, a great guy, and no, you know, no wonder he's one of the best goalie coach in the National Hockey League right now, uh, with the Carolina Hurricanes. But before that, with Pittsburgh. But so Belzy was good for me, but I struggled um, to find my rhythm. You know, first time really living away on your own. Like when you play juniors, I was, I, I actually played two and a half years of juniors at home. I was in my hometown, so I stayed at home with my parents and everything. So first year away in an apartment, it was completely different. I struggled. About February, uh, Brian McCutcheon, our coach, calls me into his office. He says, Marty, um, you're not playing well, and you're not playing at all right now. I hadn't played in maybe seven, eight, nine, ten games, whatever. He says, you're going to go down to uh, South Carolina with the Stingrays and, and go down to the coast, um, which at that time, going down to the ECHL was – going down to the fourth league because you had the IHL, the AHL, you had a lot of, you know, teams in the minors to go to. The ECHL was really a step back. It's not what it is now. It was much more of a step back. And for a first round pick that had played some NHL games, going to the ECHL, it was a big kick in the, you know what? So I went down and Mitch Korn came down with me. We practiced a couple of days and, really changed my my philosophy. I tried not to have so much stress on myself. I tried to relax. I remember we played on a Friday night, and Friday afternoon I was playing tennis, uh, just trying to get loose and to uh, to not think about the game. And I played really well Friday night uh, with, with, uh, with the Stingrays. Uh, we won, I believe, something like 2-1, or maybe we lost in a shootout, but, and then played Saturday night and played really well. 
And, and now I'm like, this is good. I'm, I'm finding my love for the game again. And I'm ready to get on the bus because we were going to go to PD, play against the PD Pride. And I'm walking on the bus, and it's a great bus. Now, the AHL, we had the regular buses, and it's hard to sleep, and it's just, you know, a regular, you know, travel bus. In the, the ECHL, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, you sleep on the floor, you, you, you sleep, and your neck hurts by the end of the night. In the ECHL, South Carolina, they had sleeper bus. They had the, the couches in the back. They had a, a PlayStation on the bus. It was it was fantastic. So I'm getting on the bus and I'm like, this is great. Like, this is going to be so much fun. And then Rick Vive, our coach, came up and he says, Marty, can I talk to you outside? And I'm like, okay, what now, right? So I'm like, this is going to be great. We're going down the road. And he goes, hey, listen, you got to get your stuff off the bus. Um, Rochester called and Mike Bills um, suffered a knee injury in Hershey tonight with the, Am- the Amherst and they need you to play tomorrow at home against Kentucky and so you and Mitch are going to stay. Mitch is going to find you flights, and you're going to go back to Rochester. Well, no internet really in you know 1997, just a little bit. There's, trying to find flights is is really tough. So Mitch and I got on a flight very early, like 8 a.m., and we went South Carolina to Charlotte, Charlotte to Philly, Philly to Rochester. We got there just an hour before the game. I got dressed. Played that night, played a fantastic game against Evgeny Nabokov and the Kentucky Trailblades. And Mitch, at the end of that season, gave me the newspaper clipping from the Monday morning from the Rochester Democrats and Chronicle. And it said, Biron shines in his return. And it basically wrote it down. And Mitch gave it to me at the end of the season. He says, that's your red letter day. He calls that like red letter day, something that really changes a career either in a positive or negative for somebody. And he says, that's the day you came back. And I still have that clipping in my, uh, at my parents' house and it really changed my career. So I have to think that going down to the East Coast Soccer League was probably the best thing that's ever happened to me because it gave me a chance at redemption. I changed my mentality about preparation. I was much more relaxed. And then I ended up coming back, finished the season strong. Second year was an unbelievable season with Rochester. And then my third year, I started in Roch with 6-0, got called up to Buffalo, and, you know, Hashik got hurt. So another injury really opened the door for me. But that's really uh, how my, my story went from the, from the beginning. You touched on getting called back up there. And the, anybody who'd listened to this podcast, they had a Chris Economo episode. And we have a little bit of connection <laughs> there because yeah. you guys went on a road trip and you picked up this guy from a rest stop. Do you remember that moment when you picked oh, yeah. him up on the side of the road and then you guys ended up going to, where were you, in PEI or in Fredericton? We went to Fredericton and then we went to St. John's, St. John's. But that's, so that's the week right after that. So I played the Sunday against Kentucky and then we're supposed to leave on – Tuesday um, or Monday or Tuesday to go to Toronto to fly out. And they're struggling to find a goalie now because we need to get a backup goalie in Rochester. And uh, because this guy Fitzsimmons, I think his name was, ended up having to go back to South Carolina because I got called up. So they're struggling to find a goalie. So Mitch, I had been on the ice with Mitch in the summertime once in a while you know, Mitch would, when we were in Buffalo for the summer workouts, he'd 
you know, bring me to his, his goalie school. So I knew Econ. And so Mitch goes to me as we get on the bus. He goes, hey, we're picking up Econ on the way to Toronto and <laughs> Buffalo. He's going to be your backup in Fredericton. I'm like, no way. Has he even been playing? He goes, no, he's been sitting on his couch this whole time. And he's probably 40 pounds overweight, but that's our only option. So he's yeah, been eating I totally... mighty taco and you guys are exactly. rest area. <laughs> <laughs> so econ, we picked him up. We went to Toronto, flew to Fredericton. And I listened to, you know, when you guys, you and econ talked about that, that, uh, you know, the story. And I totally remember playing against the Fredericton Canadians and Michelle Therrien was the coach in Fredericton and Michelle Therrien hated me because of juniors. We had big rivalry in junior from between his Laval team and his Granby team and us in Beauport. And, and then I played in Hall. So there were, there was big rivalries there. And Michelle Therrien literally for the whole game is telling his players to run me over. And he's yelling at me from the bench in French and he's yelling, Biron, you're terrible. And I'm like, who is this guy? Like the players on the bench are looking at Michel Terry and like, this is not junior. We're, we're pro here. This is the AHL. And what are you doing? So sure enough, I get run over in my crease and I'm down, but I, I you know, I tried to sell it a little bit and try to, you know, either draw a penalty or actually make the referee realize that what Tyrion and the Canadians were trying to do in running me over. <laughs> and I didn't realize I gave Akon a heart attack because he's thinking, oh, no, I got to go in the game because Marty's down at that moment. Um, I wouldn't have done that to him, but it was it was another one of those games where Thomas Volkun was on in the other net, ended up being one of Mitch's goalie and in Nashville. So it was, uh, it's one of those games where you remember, you know, the whole game, you remember what happened. And, and I also remember that that road trip was kind of fun because we partied a little bit in Fredericton. We, uh, we partied a little bit in St. John's. We, uh, we had some fun. <laughs> so Econ was a pretty good road roommate. He was a great road a uh, backup, a road roommate, a uh, wingman, whatever you want to call him. I don't, I don't remember the details of all of that, but I do remember that he was, uh, he was willing and uh, to do pretty much anything and had a lot of fun. It's all you can ask for. You always got to have your goalie partner in your corner. A goalie union trumps everything else when it comes to that stuff. I'll tell you this. Uh, I, in 2003, I went to the World Championship with Team Canada. I was the third goalie. It was Sean Burke, Roberto Luongo, and myself. And Berkey pulls me aside before, you know, the, the tournament. And he says, listen, the night before games, I like to go relax, have a couple beers, and come back to the hotel. Like, I'm not staying out late. I'm saying, no, around 9 o'clock, we go for a couple beers. And then 10, 30, 11 o'clock, we're back at the hotel. And then he's like, I'll sleep better. And he says, you're my guy. You're coming with. I'm the third goalie. I'm like there for, you know, just to be a support system. So I'm like, sure. And uh, yeah, so having a good backup that's willing to support the starter is a definite plus uh, on a team. You've given a lot of praise to Mitch Korn, but I got to yep. wonder why he called you high maintenance. What's the story behind that? Uh, listen, Mitch is, you know, he doesn't understand that uh, most goalies are high maintenance. And actually, I was more of a low maintenance guy. Um, I worked hard in practice, or so they say. Um, I, I don't know that I was always the hardest working guy, but I, I did my work. 
Um, the problem is, is with my equipment, I, I, let's not say high maintenance. I was picky. I was fanatic about little things. I used to stitch my own gear, like a little bit like Arthur Serbe. I had yeah. the, you know, a bag and I had needles and, and thread and scissors. And, you know, whenever there was a little adjustment, I would, I would go in and make my own adjustment. And dental floss too, right? That's because the thread, instead of getting wax thread, dental floss, you can't break it. That's and right. so you get a little little, you know, thing of dental floss. You keep that in your bag. So if you have to sew something, it's really easy to uh, to keep in your bag. And it cuts, you know, right there you've got the, the thing to cut it so you can make the knot and really get in and, uh, and stitch your stuff. So dental floss was there. Yeah. I think where people think I was really high maintenance is two things. One – I wore the same pair of skates my whole career and they've tried to get me out of those skates and into new ones. And I would order a new pair of skates every year and I would never try them. I literally wore the same skates every year. All I would change was the cowling on it. Um, those things I have in my garage right now, they're rotten and they are terrible. And I don't understand why I did not change skates throughout my career. It just felt really good. Um, so I was, I maintenance that way. And I used a lot of clear tape. And because my skates were so old, there was no ankle support. So I needed to tape my ankles. And it started with just a little bit of tape. And then it became basically a cast around my ankles. So, yeah, people see this as eye maintenance. I just see it as it was, you know, survival for me because my skates were about to fall apart. But I was pretty easy going with everything else. Uh, so I don't know why Mitch would say I was eye maintenance. You know, he should look in the mirror because he is about as eye maintenance as they come. So maybe uh, it's him protecting himself. <laughs> <laughs> Throwing it right back at him. That's Absolutely. That's yeah, what, you know, you talked about using dental floss and it's, I'd never known anybody else to ever use it besides myself. I used it because my dad's a dentist and whenever he'd go to fix equipment, mine, whether it was, you know, his, mine, whoever's, that's what he'd use. So it's really cool that I found somebody else that had the brains to grab this stuff because like you said, it's indestructible. Well, I can't take credit for it because um, so I was dating this girl and then we got married later and she uh, did ballet and what she would use dental floss with is when she had to sew you know, ribbons or sew things to her point shoes and our ballet shoes, she would use dental floss to sew it because it was really indestructible. So she recommended that I had the wax um, thread in my bag and she recommended I use dental floss. And so she's the one that really came up with the idea for me. Um, just like for you, it was your dad that really saw the benefit of dental floss. And if you got the one that had a little mint to it, it really smelled good too. So that was a bonus. Yeah, it made your toiletry kit smell a lot better. I know that feeling. It's a yes. good segue here into your equipment because you wore a lot of different companies. You know, you started out for, in the pro with Coho. You had CCM, iTech, yeah. Vaughn, Bauer. What was it in your pads that made your specs unique? And, you know, along the way, some of your favorites, things that you liked, didn't like, and what you looked for in your equipment. I probably would have kept the same pads for my whole career. So when I first started in Rochester and Buffalo, I wore the Coho Revolution and for those that remember in the mid-90s, you know, Patrick won 93, won the cup with the Canadians, and he had the Coal Revolution. And then he switched to the new ones. Um, that was in 95, 96, when he won the cup with, uh, uh, with Colorado. 
And he had the ones that used to have the little rubber pebbles on it. I used to say that there was pimples right on my equipment. <laughs> yeah, it was up um, on the top of the pad, kind of on the, the top of the pad, roll. inside yeah. the glove, and on the blocker. It was to absorb a little bit of the friction and make the pucks like stick a little bit more. I don't know what the science behind it was, but so I had those in Rochester and Buffalo, and I loved them. And funny enough, I'm six two. Um, and my pads were 34 inches. They were really small when you consider, you know, what goalies wear now in the National Hockey League and, and even in, in youth hockey. So I had 34-inch goal revolution, and I loved them. So, And I wasn't the kind of guy that had three, four pair of pads a year. I had one pair of pads for the whole season. Even sometimes I would have them for a year and a half. I really loved that gear. And then in my third year, maybe with the Sabres, I would say like 2001, 2002, Cole just decided to stop making them. They said, hey, listen, we're not making that pad anymore. You've got to change gear. And I said, well, wait a minute. Like, I love them. They're like, yeah, but we don't sell them retail anymore. So we stopped making them. They tried to make a replica of it with the CCM brand on it, but it didn't really catch on. Then I went to the blockade, the, the CCM blockade, which were about as, as thin as pancakes. Um, did not really love them. I tried the, the new Reebok because by that point, Lefebvre was doing pads with CCM and Coho, but it wasn't really my style. I didn't really love them. They were more of a butterfly pads, and I still wasn't a butterfly goalie at the time. So I tried them. I didn't like them. Until the year after the 2004-05 lockout, when they, they made the restriction now, they went from 12-inch wide to 11-inch wide pads, and I tried a bunch of equipment company that summer, and it wasn't until training camp that I decided on iTech. I actually had a, a Manny Fernandez reject pair of pads that I used, and they were iTech, and I really liked them, so iTech decided to make me a new set of gear. And Jose Theodore was wearing iTech as well. It, they were really coming on strong in the goalie in the goalie business, in the goalie equipment world. So I really liked them. Uh, the second year, I tried iTech uh, when I was in, in Buffalo. And when we switched our colors, so we went to the slug, to the back to the gold and blue. <laughs> the slug. And, yeah, the slug in <laughs> Buffalo. So we went to the slug. I tried iTech a little bit. I didn't love them. They switched some things in their, in their pad, the, the construction of it. It didn't really work for me. And then one of the equipment guy was hanging around the rink in training camp again. And he had a pair of Vaughn pads right there. And I said... Let me try them for practice. And I tried them from practice and I liked them. They were a bit of an old school, softer type pads and worked better for me. So I wore Vaughn for, man, probably three full season, one with Buffalo, two with the Flyers, one with the Islanders. So four full season, I wore Vaughn pads. And then when I got to the Rangers, so... <laughs> I showed up at camp and my Vaughn equipment is not there. And I asked the trainer, the equipment manager there, when is it coming? And they're like, I think they messed up something. They said it's going to be here this week. I don't think it's going to be here. And I really didn't want to go on the ice with orange and blue pads 
because I felt like I was cheating. Yeah, you feel like a complete Munson out there. I was cheating the New York fans. Like wearing New York Islanders colors on the ice with the New York Rangers was not really a good sign. So yeah, and it's just embarrassing. Uh, I, I've had to do that before yeah. when my gear isn't ready for training camp and you feel like an idiot out there. Oh, I, I felt so bad. And then one day I just walked through the training room and I uh, they so in the Rangers practice facility, uh, cast their equipment managers got old pads everywhere they're like lining the top of the equipment room and i pulled a pair of henrik lundquist bauer pads down and i said to Cass, i said can i try those in practice today and he said yeah i tried them in practice i really liked them and they were a little too tall for me so we called bauer right away and uh, we called todd brown who uh, you just uh, had a nice conversation with he was working with bauer at the time and Brownie literally got pads out for me in three days. It took a day to make, a day to be at the league, and it was in, in New York in no time. I wore them, really liked them, so I finished my career with Bauer and, you know, really enjoyed uh, what they were doing. And plus, I was, I was playing with the King. I was playing with Enric Lundqvist. We had a Bauer equipment rep at every practices, at every function, so I was well taken care of. Let's just put it that way. And it, it worked for me. So you always liked a little bit of a softer pad, right? Because that's what Brownie was yes. saying is that you essentially found these old Lundquist pads that were all broken down and soft. And then it was like this aha moment. Hey, these are good. I can wear them like this. Whereas Hank would want something that was stiffer and newer feeling. Absolutely. And even when I tried Reebok, uh, Reeboks were too stiff for me. They were really built stiff for me. I didn't like them. Um, I was always more of a an older construction type pads where they had the knee rolls. Although for my first year in New York, my first couple of years in New York, I didn't have the knee rolls, knee rolls, but I had two breaks in my knee, one below the knee, one above the knee, so they could bend in a little bit more. Um, I used to take my pads like in a ball, so I would bend the boot and bend the top of the pads and I would put tape around them so they'd be in that position overnight. So when I showed up to practice the next day, I could bend them back and they were really flexible and really uh, more, you know, a lot more soft than, than when I first got them. Um, so I, I really needed a softer pad. I hated changing pads and getting new ones, although I knew, I knew that I needed new pads because, you know, they would break in down and you practice on them so much. But there was always a sense where I went from pillows to stiff, stiff pillows and I didn't like the transition. So um, I tried to keep my pads on as, as long as I could and tried to make the best of it. I'd like to go back to your time in Buffalo here really quick. And yep. I want to know what you learned from watching and playing alongside Dominic Hasek and how that prepared you to become a starting goalie in the league. Because you spent the bulk of your career there, you know, three, four years as a starter. And, and it must have been amazing to watch and see what that guy did in practice and in, in games on a nightly basis. Uh, as you pointed out, practice was the best time to watch Dom and to see what he was doing. So he never took a shot for granted. He never took a, a drill for granted. He always worked as hard as you can work from start to finish and even afterwards. And I find that's true of most great goalies. I played with Hasek. I played with Ryan Miller. I played with Henrik Lundqvist. Uh, those were all superstar goaltenders, and they were always the hardest working goalies uh, or players on the ice. They, they from start to finish, uh, and even after, you had to pull them off the ice. You had to pull Dom off the ice. 
at the end of practice to say, okay, go get some rest. You know, you don't need to stay on the ice an extra half an hour. We used to do a lot of goalie drills. And I used to think, well, I can't really watch Dom in the goalie drills because he does his own thing and it works for him. But then I realized that technically he was so good. Anticipating the play, moving around the crease, like his lateral movement, his, his shuffle push, his T push, how square he was to the shooter. All his technical elements were really strong. Where Dom really was different than everybody else is how he stopped the puck. We're in a time where guys went down butterfly and used their body to cover most of the net. Dom was willing to go sideways and lay down and, and react to pucks where they were being shot. That's what really separated Dom from most of the goalies uh, in the 90s and even in the 2000s. But working with him, you got to learn so much because he was really strong technically. His skating around the crease was was so much better than you would think uh, it would be for a goaltender that was laying around the crease half the time. Um, and the way that he competed in practice, guys used to say, you know, let's go down to Marty's hand so we can get some confidence because they knew they couldn't score on Dom. And it wasn't because I was bad. It's just because you could literally never score on the hash check. ESPN, when they were doing NHL games, would keep track of the number of shots and number of goals Dom would give up in warm-up. Because for you and me, warm-up is a time to feel the puck and get going. Who cares if guys score? You know, I'm just getting myself loosened up. For Dom, it was a competition. I don't want anybody to score in warm-up. And he used to, like, come back and say, well, Dominic Ashik is ready for tonight's contest. He stopped 49 out of 50 shots he saw in warm-up. And I'd be like, are you kidding me? You're counting warm-up shots? But that's how good he was. Yeah, I always took warm-ups as being competitive and then I started to get older and I'd stand up more and more and you'll see some guys that yeah. vary some some won't even try to stop a shot other guys are super competitive and it's truly about the person there's no one way to do it but it is always interesting to watch somebody who really sends it in, in warm-ups because yeah. they'll pull out a save that you would never expect and it's just purely getting ready for the game you wouldn't think that and to see the reaction on a teammate's face is always really funny yeah, yeah, and I played with Henrik Lundqvist, and Lundqvist was the first goalie to really do the, the shootout at the end of warm-up, right? Because mm -hmm. that's more of a European thing, like you work on your shootouts a little bit and your, your timing, and if guys were scoring in shootout, he would not leave. He would stay in the net until he figured it out. So I'm the backup goalie, and I'm waiting in the corner, and I'm like, okay, Hank, there's a minute left now to the warm-up. Get, get off the ice. <laughs> and he would stay on. And he would like get so mad at guy like Matt Zuccarello or Eric Christensen. Those were the guys that had the moves in shootouts and were really good. And he would get mad at them because he wanted to stop them. And if they took it easy, they're like, okay, I'm just going to shoot it in his chest. He would yell at them, bring me your best. What are you doing? And, and it was interesting. Like he was really competitive in warmups. Um, that's not, that wasn't my approach, but I learned from him too in that sense that um, you know, you, you got to really, you can't turn it on and off just in game. Sometimes you have to build up to it and you have to be, you know, uh, as, as, as prepared as you can. And Lundqvist was maybe one of the best at it. 
It's funny you mentioned Zuccarello because for whatever reason, I was looking back through clips the other day and I found one of me playing for Albany, I think, and I get absolutely roasted by Zuccarello when he was playing for Hartford. <laughs> and he did that cutback move where he goes to his forehand and I'm yeah. in the corner and I've seen it five times since. And I'm also thinking about this year when I was in Ottawa with Craig Anderson and we would do breakaways at the end also, but Andy would take three or four and he was out no matter what. It didn't matter if the puck went in. I knew what I was going in the net afterwards, but I actually kind of like that though too. It gave you a look that you don't often see. Uh, And even in practice, you don't see that many breakaways, but they do happen once or twice a game. Uh, I want to go also back here though. Is there a moment in Buffalo where you really felt like you crossed the bridge to where I'm a starter, I can perform in this league, I know I can be a number one? Um, yeah, well, so the first year Hashek was hurt. That was my first year in Buffalo. I played a lot of the games. So it was me and Dwayne Rolison. And I think Dwayne Rolison had lost the confidence of Lindy Ruff. Uh, he hadn't played well in the start of the season. So Lindy played me a lot. And Dom wasn't back for literally almost three months. So I played a lot of games. That was 99-2000. That was my first full season with the Sabres. So that year, I thought, you know what? I've played a lot of games. Uh, I think I can be a, a goalie that, that can be a number one goalie in the National Hockey League. At some, I, you know, in January, I was talked about in the Calder uh, discussion for Rookie of the Year. Um, I didn't play a lot of games down the stretch, so obviously I wasn't considered. I wasn't even in the top three. But, you know, in January, some people were talking about, well, this goalie in Buffalo is doing pretty good. Well, Ashik is hurt. Uh, he's in the conversation. But two years later, so we're in 2002-2003 now, I believe, and Hashik got traded to to, uh, to Detroit, and I played 72 games that year. So Bob Asenza was my backup goalie, and Bob played maybe eight or nine games. Um, it was his last season, and, and it was a tough year for Bobby uh, on the ice. But I played 72 games. Uh, most games in the NHL that year, second in minutes to Marty Brodeur because he played a little bit more minutes than me. Um, and that that told me, like, hey, I am I belong here. I was asked to play a lot of games, and I performed well, and I belong to the, you know, as a number one goalie in the NHL, and that's what I want to do for many, many years. Now, Unfortunately, we went through some issues with ownership in Buffalo. The team went through bankruptcy. The team wasn't all that good. Um, And then there was a lockout year. So I never really got to really grab a hold of the job and really go forward with it until I got to Philadelphia. But I knew that it was in me that I could be a number one goalie. Um, Maybe I was a better backup in the National Hockey League and, and had more success that way. But, um, you know, the two years in Philadelphia at least gave me a sense that I knew I was a number one goalie. I knew I could do it and I could do it well. And I, uh, I was lucky enough to have that chance. And you also got to play a lot of playoff hockey in Philadelphia, too. And I'm yep. wondering if, the, if you found that to be a hard city to play in, whether it was in terms of the media, fans, anything like that, because it seems like it goes both ways. Some people really embrace it, while others find it difficult to play in markets like that. No, I didn't find it hard. Maybe it was too naive to look at it as it was tough. I used to like talking to Tim Panaccio in the locker room. He was a reporter, and Panaccio is a tough reporter, but I didn't mind talking to him. I always had good relationship with the media and never really felt that pressure. The pressure I felt was the fact that my first year in Philly, 
where we were last the year before. We finished 30th in the league with uh, when I got traded there. We ended up, you know, winning. I ended up winning 30 games, so I had a 30-win season. Uh, played really well that year. We went to the conference finals, lost to Pittsburgh. But so the second year in Philly, I put a lot of pressure on myself, thinking I wanted to be, you know, a 35, 40 win guy. I wanted to play every game. Um, I felt like, you know, going to the conference finals was going to be the, the minimum that we should be doing with the Flyers because all of a sudden we were supposed to be better. They signed players. Uh, you know, we had made some changes. Uh, the team was young, and we had done so well the year before. And I put a lot of pressure on myself. So I don't think it was a tough place to play in. And I, you can hear the whole thing saying, well, the Flyers goalies, uh, you know, they always struggle. But you know what? The Flyers have had a lot of good goalies. Even if it's Robert Ash, Robin Chikmanek, Brian Boucher, uh, you know, they, they've had tons of really, really good goalies over the years. Uh, they were never patient with their goalie, and they were they weren't even patient with Sergei Bobrovsky. And look at what he's doing now. So you know that was their own fault. I think the Flyers have had really good goalies. And I always thought that. So I didn't put that pressure on me. I just had internal pressure to perform. Um, I thought I was going to stay there for a while. I wanted a new contract. I put that pressure on me, and I think that's where. It was a tough place to play more for the internal pressure that I put on as opposed to the external pressure from the fans and the organization that was coming towards me. An interesting part of that is that you did two years there as a starter, had playoff success, but then you found yourself in Long Island the next season. And, you know, (laughs) that was a pretty odd era. And unfortunately, in your career, it seems like you ran into a lot of that with Buffalo, with all the extraneous stuff going on and, and with New York and with the Islanders, you know, what was, what was it all like there? And I also want you to give you a chance to redeem yourself because I got, we got a mutual friend in Rob Shrimp who said you were a terrible card player, but an awful <laughs> lot of fun to play with on the plane. So take the, yeah. take it from there. <laughs> See, I, I, I lose track of what's going on very quickly. I get involved in five conversations at the same time. I play cards, but then I'm, you know, watching a movie at the same time. So they used to take advantage of me at the card table. They would literally put the DVD player in front of my face and be like, here, Marty, you haven't seen this movie. You watch it while we're playing poker, and I have no idea what's going on, right? So that's my own (laughs) fault. I'm a really good card player when I put the time to it and the focus to it. But, you know, I like playing, you know, hearts. I like playing schnarples. I like playing the card games that you constantly involve in the game. When we play poker, it's like, ugh. I have seven deuce and I haven't played a hand in a half an hour. I'm going to go all in for the fun of it. And so, yeah, that wasn't good. Uh, so, but Shrimpy, listen, he can say all he wants. Um, I used to own him on the ice. So I think that's even better. So uh, he thought he was all cool with his slick hand moves and lacrosse gesture and whatever. So I owned him on the ice, but I, <laughs> I had a lot of fun with, uh, with Shrimpy and he was, he was great. So, uh, um, make sure you say hi when you see him because uh, I haven't seen or talked to him in a while. So uh, that's a blast from the past right there. Um, to go back to the island, it was a weird situation because I was with Philadelphia for two years. I thought I was going to be there a lot longer. And, you know, I had meetings with Paul Holmgren after my first season. And Holmgren is the general manager in Philly. And he's saying, listen, Marty, uh, you're going to be here a long time. It's not a matter of, 
of if we're going to resign you. It's a matter of when we make it happen. And I thought it was going to happen and it never did. So I had that, that thinking that, you know, I'm going to be in Philadelphia for a long time and it never did. And, and I was very disappointed by that and no fault to Paul Holmgren. Listen, he's got to do his job and he's got to, you know, manage a salary cap and try to, to improve the team. And, and the next year, they went to the finals. So he did a, he did a pretty good job with that. Uh, but it left me in a tough position because there wasn't a lot of starting jobs available. Colorado had a starting job available, um, but they went with Craig Anderson that year as a uh, free agent. He went to Colorado, and there was really nothing else. Uh, I think L.A. may have had a, a, maybe an opening, but uh, they were really big on Jonathan Quick, and why not? I mean, Jonathan Quick is a fantastic goalie, and he was so good, so they, they went with Quickie. Um, so the only option available to me, and that's like we're talking three weeks into free agency now where every day, morning and night, I'm calling my agent, anything new today, anything new that happened, who'd you talk to? I really had no options. So the Islanders were one of the options that that worked itself out, but I was going to go there as a as a insurance policy. Ray, uh, um, Rick DiPietro wasn't healthy to start the season. They didn't know when he was going to be healthy. They had signed Dwayne Rolison as their number one guy, and Roley had you know just had a really couple of really good years. Uh, playing in Edmonton and you know so he was going to come in as the number one guy I, I I didn't know where I was going to fit we started to share at the beginning of the season me and Rolly were sharing the net you know we played about half and half and then Rolly started playing better than I did and Di Pietro was healthy so I ended up being the third guy and really struggled to keep going on what I had built in Philadelphia. And really, I thought after the Islanders year that I was done. I'm like, man, who's going to want me? I am done. And the Rangers and Benoit Allaire um, gave me a lifeline. And working with Benny and working with Torts, Torts gave me a role. And they really liked what I did. And it gave me a, a, a boost. And I played another three and a half years after that when I thought I was done after the Islanders year. So, um, you know, sometimes you think you're you're done and it's over and you you never know what's going to happen and it happened with the with the Rangers and with Benoit Air. Was it nice to finish out with the Rangers? I mean, a, a big money organization that treats players pretty well and playing alongside Hank and also, I mean, how did you know when it was time to walk away from the game? Well, that was tricky, right? So I had a really good relationship with John Tortorella and I felt bad. I mean, we lose. Uh, you know, in the first round to Boston, no, second round to Boston, I think, um, at, in 2013 after a, a, you know, lockout shortened season. And um, it was it was a tough year for everybody. And there were some rumors that Torts maybe wasn't the right guy for the Rangers and our window in New York was closing. So they went ahead and hired Alain Vigneault and they fired Torts and hired Vigneault. Now, I had had... Vigneault as a coach in juniors for a year and we did not see eye to eye in juniors um, and for whatever reason you know you just sometimes you don't really mesh and you, you don't have that chemistry so I came to camp in New York uh, in you know August September of 2013 pretty much knowing this was my last year they had just signed Cam Talbot to a multi-year deal 
His first year was a two-way deal, but his second year was a one-way deal. So I knew that after this season, they were probably going to have Lundqvist with Talbot in New York. So I approached it as, you know, this is probably going to be my last year. My family uh, at the time was staying in Buffalo, so I moved away by myself to New York. And, and you know what that's like. That's that's not easy personally. That's not easy. I had four kids. My my third uh, my third one, my my middle daughter was starting kindergarten, and I remember putting her on the you know dri driving her to school first day of kindergarten, and then I wasn't even home that day when she returned from kindergarten because I was on the way to New York for camp. Um, so it was tough. I, I struggled with that. Uh, you know, I struggled with getting prepared during the summer, really the workouts and doing everything that I needed to do to be at the top of my game. So I showed up to New York and I wasn't really prepared for camp. Um, didn't really feel it. I, I tried to, to push through and I tried to kind of just say, you know, let's plow through this. It's going to get better. Uh, but by the time, you know, October, the season started and, you know, by the time I went into net, into the net a couple of times and everybody remembers, you know, the game in San Jose where Hurdle made the move between the legs, but people don't know is I got a start a few days later in St. Louis and I remember being done. I remember just being done. I was like, I, I love the game. I love practicing. I just don't think I want to play anymore. I, there's something that's not fitting within my personal and professional life right now. And I think I'm ready to move on to something else. So I played the game in St. Louis and got pulled in the second period. After the second period, it, I, I wasn't playing well. I remember calling my dad after the game and saying, I think I'm done. And he said, well, you're coming home tomorrow because we had a day off the next day and I was flying to Buffalo. He says, just take 24, 48 hours to think about it. I came to Buffalo, you know, sat down with my family, talked with my parents, um, flew back to New York for a practice on Monday and... I went on the ice for practice. After practice, I had a meeting with Glenn Sater and Alain Vignon. They basically said that they were going to put me on waivers. Um, they wanted to call Cam Talbot up, so I was going to be assigned to Hartford. I said, you know what? I think I'm going to do it one – I'm going to take it a step further. I, I, I'm done. I went home, thought about it. I came back today for practice, but I'm really not feeling it. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's time. It's the end for me. And uh, they said, okay, well, why don't you go home, take another two, three days and give us a, an answer before the end of the week. And I called them on Thursday. And I remember I was watching a Buffalo Sabres game at home. It was Ryan Miller and Roberto Luongo in Nets. It was Vancouver Buffalo. And I'm thinking to myself, these poor bastards, they have no idea. You know, I don't want to be those guys anymore. I want to be doing something else. And the next day I called the Rangers and said, I am done. I'm going to come back in, get my stuff. And, uh, and that's it. So, you know, they were very generous and very understanding. And I, uh, they, I ended up working for MSG in New York the next week. I was doing Rangers games and I was doing TSN. I was doing NHL Network. And things went really quickly. I got a call from Kevin Adams here in Buffalo. Say, hey, we're starting this uh, Academy of Hockey in Buffalo. We'd like you to be involved. So I wasn't really retired long. I was more busy after retirement than I was uh, when I was playing. So uh, 
it uh, it all worked well uh, in post retirement. That's for sure. Yeah, now you're a U.S. citizen. Did it? Give I am. You, yeah. Did it give you <laughs> peace of mind and some closure though to walk away from the game on your terms? Because you see so many guys that just hang on forever, and you're looking at them going like, "Why are you doing this, man? Like, just walk away. Like, do it when." You don't have everybody else in the game telling you it's time. And I've always thought that the best way to walk out of it would be when I made that decision, not somebody yeah. else. Did you have that as well? I did. And I, there's a little blimp on that radar, like a blimp on the radar, because the Rangers were going to send me down to Hartford. And I really did not want, if I was going to be away from my family and missing out on my daughter's kindergarten and my son's fourth grade and my other daughter's second grade and another daughter in preschool. Like I, it was going to be for, you know, the fact that I was finishing my career in the national hockey league. So I really did not want to say I'm going to go to Hartford and just collect a paycheck because, you know, people are saying, Hey, you're passing on a million dollars at the time. I was still going to make NHL money. And, and so for me, that wasn't the important, the important was I had peace of mind that I was done with playing the game, that I loved the game of hockey so much that I didn't want to be bitter at the game. And I was starting to get bitter at the game. I didn't, you know, going to to the coach telling you you're starting tomorrow was not giving me joy. It was giving me like bitterness a little bit like, oh, why? Like I so I really did not want that to drag on because I didn't want to be one of those guys and it's happened that retire from the game and hate the game of hockey because of what it it either took away from them or it didn't fulfill something. For me, it had fulfilled so many great things that I wanted it to be a positive, and I was able to keep it a positive. I walked away and started a new career, and I love the game of hockey even more now than I did when I played. I mean, I stay up to watch games. I get up early to watch highlights, to to do my notes and to prepare for what's happening. So um, I, I, it's, yeah, I guess it's good that I was able to make that decision and not let somebody else do it for me. There's two things more I want to ask you before we wrap this thing up. And yeah. the first one is you're still the only guy who wore double zero that I can ever think of. Maybe there's been other people, but they had to change that or actually put a rule in place that that number can't be worn. Did you wear yeah. that in junior before you came to pro? And was it really disheartening when you learned that you had to change out of that? It was. So I wore it in midget. My one year in midget AAA, the, the numbers for our teams were really weird. They were double zero and they were all the double numbers. So 11, 22, 33, 44, 55, and so on. It was really weird. So um, basically there was three goalie numbers, double zero, 30, and 33. So we put them in a hat and we drew because we didn't really know what number we wanted. I ended up with double zero and had a great year that year. Uh, was goalie of the year in midget and got drafted in the first round in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. So I decided to keep it in my years of juniors. It worked really well. I wore it in Buffalo, my first ever NHL game. The trainers in Buffalo were like, hey, you're double zero. We love it. We think that's great. So I wore that's, it. That's nice because it, when I came into the league, nobody wanted to give yeah. me 56. <laughs> that's the benefits <laughs> like, of being why? a first rounder. Yeah. It's, <laughs> when you're a first rounder, you get a little privilege. When you're a bum like me who came out of four years of no entry level and stuff, it's like, who's this guy? We're not giving him 56. Well, He's got to be a you know greedy, selfish, egotistical guy. No, man, it's just a he, number. And my dad used it in racing. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, you know what? Here's the thing. The, the uh, athletic trainer in Buffalo, Jim Pizzatelli, was a flashy guy. And um, he loved it. So he was like, you are wearing double zero and I don't care. So even when I got to Rochester, Pete Rogers, who's now the equipment manager in Nashville, was my equipment manager in Rochester. And I said, hey, Pete, uh, double zero this year? And he goes, nope. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, no, you're going to be wearing number one. And I'm like, what? And it wasn't until like this year. And I talked to Pete about it. He said, Mitch Gordon and I at the time talked about it. And we felt that you were a rookie and you needed to earn that. So we were going to give you a number. And that's what it was. So I was like, kind of, I hated the number one number. That, that was first <laughs> and foremost. And I did not have a really good year until the end of that season. So now move on to 98, 99. And the National Hockey League is preparing for their Y2K and Wayne Gretzky is retiring. And so they basically are making some changes. And they said numbers now have to be from 1 to 98. Because every time they put my number into the computer, there used to be a glitch with insurance or with pension that double zero didn't register. So instead of changing the program, they basically made the rule that said it has to be from 1 to 98. So... I ended up having to change number. I thought about what number I wanted to wear. My brother playing in Shawinigan in the queue back then was wearing 34. So I said, how about I wear 43? I wear the opposite of him. And funny enough, my, my trainer said in Buffalo, he says, well, there's a kid, the Russian kid that he's going to have 43. And I said, a Russian kid, he's not been here yet. No, no, no. I have 43. Give him whatever number. And that kid was Max Afinaganov, and he ended up with 61, which is way better number for him than 43 anyway. So, uh, yeah, so <laughs> that's kind of like how that whole thing happened. I know, so John Davidson wore double zero with the Rangers. Um, I know Kevin Weeks wore it in the minors and in juniors as well, but then he went to 80. He never wore it in the National Hockey League. And there was another guy, too, that wore zero in the National Hockey League. I forget who he is, but there's only two or three, and really they made the rule so I uh, I wouldn't be able to wear it anymore. It's an elite club, very elite I, club. I, John Davidson, <laughs> man, that's my role model. Like, whatever he did, I want to do. Like, he was a, you know, a goalie in the National Hockey League and a star goalie in the National Hockey League. He did an unbelievable job as a broadcaster, and now he's the president of the Columbus Blue Jackets. I'm like, if I can achieve half of what John Davidson has achieved in his career, I'll be a happy man. But uh, yeah, so that's great. <laughs> Last thing I want to ask you about, we can't go an entire podcast without talking about it because unfortunately it's something all the fans want to know and hear about. And it was that infamous line brawl where you had the <laughs> stones to step up and fight Ray Emery, who, by the way, everybody in hockey already knew was not somebody you wanted to step up and go with. And there's a couple of these guys that you know along the way. Dan Cluche fell into that category too, yeah. where you didn't want to see him go on bonkers at the other end because you didn't want to have to do it. Yeah. How did this happen? And as you're going up to him, are you thinking, well, this is it. I, I This might be it, but I'm going for it. And I'm sticking up for my team and I'm, I'm defending the dignity of Buffalo. So I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but for me, I always thought or dreamed of, or you close your eyes and you're thinking, okay, there's a brawl. I'm going to go toe-to-toe with a goalie at center ice. I wanted to feel that at least one time in my career. I knew I wasn't the biggest of goalies. I was, you know, six to 170 pounds. Like, 
I would basically be a rag doll for a lot of those guys out there. You know, the big guys like Sean Burke, like Berkey was was tough. Garth Snow and Steve Shields were tough, right? They were yeah. heavyweights. I knew I was going to be a rag doll. But there was a little glimmer of hope in my head <laughs> when I saw Felix Podvey beat up on Ron Extall. And I thought I could be that guy. I could be the little skinny guy that will get a couple lucky punches and will be on the highlight reels for years to come. And not knowing that Felix was a tough SOB in his days. Like Felix grew up a, a, like a, a, you know, Hell's Angels kind of kid, like <laughs> having fights on the streets when he was in high school. And I didn't know that about him. So when he fought Ron Extall, Felix knew exactly what he was doing. When I fought Ray Emery, I had no idea what I was doing, but I felt this is my time. This is where I'm going to get one or two lucky punches and I'm going to be, you know, a hero. Uh, and people will remember this day forever. So, you know, the whole play happens where Chris Neal hits Chris Drury. Drury's our captain. He's laying on the ice. You know, Lindy Ruff and Brian Murray are yelling at, at each other on the bench. And we put on the ice Andrew Peters, Adam Mayer, and Patrick Coletta. Coletta was a crazy, crazy player, and it was his first NHL game. So I knew fireworks were going to happen. I've already got my glove loosened up, my mask unhooked. I know what's going to happen, and I know i got to fight Ray Emery, but I've got that little Felix Podvin in my head saying, you're going to get a lucky punch, and... You're going to be a hero. So we get to center ice, and Ray's got the big hair, and he's got a big smile like he's about to, uh, you know, eat whatever your favorite food is. Like he's about to have a full-out poutine for dinner, and it's going to be great, right? So I get in, and I, I grab onto him. Uh, number one, I grabbed on with the wrong hand. I grabbed with my right hand instead of grabbing with my left. So he's got his right hand ready to just unleash about 12 bombs. He didn't hit me in the face, which was great. He hit me in the back of the head, which hurt for like three weeks. And then we went down on the ice and he goes, you want, you want to get up, do it again. I'm like, yeah, let's get up, do it again. So I push him off a little bit. He trips. We get back up to look at each other. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to get a second chance here. Round two, let's go. Are, and your Ray Emery, point, are your teammates at this point going, stay down, Marty, stay down? No, because everybody's fighting and we're across from the benches. We're closer to the penalty bench. So the guy's <laughs> on, on the bench and the building is so loud, I can't hear a thing. It's like it's like uh, Billy Chapel and for love of the game, it's clear the mechanism. It's me and Ray, and I can't hear a thing, right? So I'm ready to go round two, and I'm like, okay, let's go. And all of a sudden, Ray looks to his left, and he sees Andrew Peters coming over. And he basically looked at me and says, eh, you were the appetizer. The, the, you know, the main meal is coming. I'm fighting Andrew Peters. So I got stood up. I got stood up for round two, and Ray Emery fought Andrew Peters. And, you know, he did really good against Andrew Peters, who was, you know, a really tough guy in the league. So Ray was, you know, I never got my lucky punch. I never got to be a hero, although some people, most people here in Buffalo still remember that day. Um, I just met people that were at the game again yesterday. They're like, we were at that game against Ottawa with the brawl. And it's like, you know, carved in their memory. Um, but the best part out of all of this is it was a fantastic hockey game. 
Ryan Miller and Martin Gerber ended up going in the nets uh, because Ray and I got kicked out. Andrew Peters got kicked out. Uh, we won 6-5 in overtime, and I got to watch the rest of the game in the players' lounge in the locker room in my full gear eating pizza and chicken wings. It was <laughs> glorious. Like, I sat down, and all of our injured players had ordered food, and I'm eating pizza and chicken wings in my full gear for the rest of the game, watching it on TV. And it was it was one of those surreal moments that uh, was just amazing. Goalie fights are hilarious because we oh. look like two polar bears out there trying to dance with one another and we're trying to throw punches. And I mean, very rarely do any ever land. And you're talking about Potvin and Hextall. Those guys were landing bombs left and oh, right. Yeah. And I think about Cloutier and Salo and some of the other ones that used to happen when we didn't wear as big a gear. Joseph beating up Shevel Day. I was at that one. Oh, were you really? Hit, well, you yeah, got Patrick yeah. and, uh, and Chris Osgood oh. and Mike Vernon. And, and, Vernon, and I was, yeah. Oh. So, but you become a folk hero, whether you win or lose the thing, that's, that's a moment that fans remember forever. And I had one in my career. It was in Las Vegas in the ECHL when I was a first year pro. I fought a guy named Tom Lawson, who's six, five. And I mean, I threw two punches. I missed them both by a foot and a half. We danced around for 15 seconds and hit the ice. It's before YouTube. It doesn't even exist on video. But people Thanks for listening to Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. Please make sure that you like, comment, leave a rating, subscribe, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere that you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I end up being second star of the game, and I walk out for it wearing sandals, shorts, and a t-shirt afterwards. So you took your moment of fame. You went out there to give the fans what you wanted that's for sure yeah you got to well listen this has been an incredible hour and 20 minutes i never expected so much but marty man i, I can't say thanks enough you had an amazing career and i can only imagine how many more stories there were behind it so thanks so much for taking the time today thank you for listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.